this is Damien O'Darty. We're here on the Center Maryland pod that we call the Lobby Pod. We are here with Senator Jim Rosapep, who to me has been a unique person to watch and interact with in state government because uh, he has seen me at my uh, worst and my finest and treated me all the same regardless, no matter uh, how much or little power I was associated with. Senator Rosapep has always been a very independent-minded education activist and environmental activist in the state of Maryland. He's done that as a member of the House of Delegates. Uh, he does that now as a state senator. Uh, but one thing people may not recall is that in addition to being one of Paris Glendening's great appointees to the uh, University System of Maryland um, and overseeing and governing that amazing set series of institutions, President Clinton called upon him to be the ambassador of the United States to Romania. And so uh, someone who has had front seat um, perspectives in this very uh, treasured and, and volatile place in the world that we're seeing today in Eastern Europe. So Senator Rosapev, you know, I can't do you any justice on the introduction, but, uh, but I, I'm so glad you're here to talk to us at, and I want to date stamp this just a little bit. You know, we are coming to you uh, on the 20th of March. So while I know whatever Senator Rosapep is going to say is going to be a prophecy, I want you to actually know it and see it because uh, this will probably air a, a couple days after we recorded on this Sunday, March 20th. Senator Rosapep, sorry for that bleeding introduction or, or, or long introduction, um, uh, but uh, you've done so much for the state of Maryland, and I, I would love people to know it up front. Thanks an awful lot. Very kind introduction. I'm glad to be with you. So uh, I'd love to hear about uh, what's going on just immediately in your view before I, before I uh, sort of poke you for some insights on the global situation. Just Maryland, uh, the Senate of Maryland, uh, just this uh, weekend, it looks like uh, the governor, the Senate president, and the Speaker of the House came together on a gas tax holiday. Uh, is that a big deal? Is that, uh, is that something meaningful? Talk to me about uh, this uh, reduction in the gas tax or gas tax holiday. Well, we hope it's going to be meaningful. It's going to be for a month and it's going to be almost a hundred million dollars put in people's pockets. Uh, I think we've structured it so that uh, the competition among gas stations will make sure that it's passed on to consumers. Uh, but the big variable in gas prices is not the gas tax. It's the price of oil internationally. And obviously gas prices have gone through the roof uh, because of Putin's war uh, on Ukraine and it's not over. And so my guess is that gas prices are going to continue to bounce around a lot, go up, go down uh, for quite a while to come. So this gas tax holiday will be helpful to people, but uh, it's part of a much bigger picture. Well, I tried to start off with sort of a state Senate point of view and keep it uh, Maryland wide, but it's, it's sort of impossible with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine occurring. I think at this point, we're sort of at the day 24 of what the, the Russians would call their special operations. But if you're the mayor of Kiev or you're any other international observer, this is, uh, this is tragedy upon tragedy. Love to hear your point of view as, as just a former ambassador who's really been run right there on the front lines, the front seat of the world. I'd love to hear your, your present take on where we are now. I think we're in an unpredictable stalemate, um, from what I can tell. 
militarily, uh, particularly in the last week, um, the Russian troops have not been able to get inside Kiev, as everybody knows. And there's some reason to believe that uh, the Ukrainian troops are actually pushing them back in some places. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why Putin started this atrocious bombing of civilians and you know hospitals and theaters and all this because they try to it's sort of like the the London Blitzkrieg that Hitler did trying to terrorize the population because so he, he doesn't seem to be able to you know win with his troops on the ground. But where this goes is unclear. I mean, obviously, uh, the president of Ukraine has indicated that um, there could be a negotiated settlement of some kind, not clear what it would be, very complicated. Uh, but I think it's very unpredictable where it's gonna go. It could get, it could get a lot worse um, or they could come to some agreement, but uh, unpredictable is the key word. If you're a US ambassador in that theater as you were, and this is going on, what, what's your mindset? What are your priorities? What are you thinking? Well, I was ambassador to Romania during a war, uh, the war in Kosovo. Uh, people forget about that because of Afghanistan and Iraq. But in 1999, when I was ambassador to Romania, uh, uh, Slobodan Milosevic, who was the leader of, uh, of Serbia, announced that he wanted to drive out uh, the Albanians from Kosovo, which was governed by uh, uh, Serbia. And so for the first time since NATO was created, uh, NATO went to war. It was not boots on the ground, but NATO uh, pursued a very vigorous bombing campaign uh, in Serbia to stop them from doing that. And I was ambassador during that time from March 24th, 1999 to June 8th, 1999, where NATO was at war uh, with Serbia. And Romania is a neighboring country of Serbia. And so from my perspective from next door, it was a frontline country. Is it was very complicated because on the one hand, when NATO or anybody else or the Russians or any powerful um, country is bombing your neighbor, you worry that you might get hit by some of those bombs. I mean, think, think if uh, New York State was being bombed. We might worry about it a little bit here in, in Maryland. And so right, are we so aptly proved in Vietnam, right? Yeah. And so, so part of it's that part of it is, which is more complex, which is the relations between the peoples of neighboring countries. And in this case, um, one of the ironies and tragedies of what Putin has done is that Russians and Ukrainians have always had a complex relationship because they are culturally similar. Their languages are similar. Um, their religion is similar for most of them, particularly in the, in the eastern part of the country. But they see themselves as distinct ethnic groups. And so it took 10 years for the, the Soviet Union, for the Red Army, after uh, uh, Lenin's revolution in, um, in Russia, for them to really take over and pacify Ukraine because it was such Ukrainian resistance. And so, you know, over the, the decades of, of communist rule, there was more integration. Uh, Russia did a lot to industrialize Ukraine. You come to the end of the Soviet Union, they break up. There were nuclear weapons that the Soviet Union had in Ukraine. And when they became separate countries, um, Russia very much did not want Ukraine to have nuclear weapons. And so there was a negotiation in 1994 where Russia and NATO and the U.S. said they would 
defend the security of Ukraine if they gave up their nuclear weapons and shipped them back to Russia. And Ukraine did that. And obviously now Russia has violated that. But the United States and NATO have not. They've said, okay, we we asked you to give up the nuclear weapons to make it a safer world. And obviously now you're threatened. And so we've, we've come, to, come to their defense. Um, what's tragic about this for Russians is not just the damage to their economy, the damage to their reputation in the world, all those things that are, are pretty obvious. But also in the long run, to have one of your largest close neighbors, your largest closest neighbor in the West, Ukraine, and one that shares so many cultural ties with you, embittered for the next hundred years, is just incredibly stupid and dangerous for Russia because everybody remembers who killed their mother, who killed their grandmother, who killed their cousin. And so Ukrainians will remember for decades about the war in, in 2022. And that will only hurt Russia over the long run. You know, I teased you a little bit at the beginning about uh, being a prophet, but, you know, you get to see this, uh, this political climate and atmosphere from Annapolis or from City Hall in Baltimore, and, uh, and you're used to certain things. You're not used to uh, your, your friendly state senator leading an international coalition of uh, pro-NATO voices to go into battleground jurisdictions during um, the presidential campaign between President Biden and President Trump. <laughs> and you're out there in these swing states talking to them about the 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 relevance the the critical nature of nato and honestly from you know my, from my rather pedestrian view i'm thinking you know wow this is a pretty intricate uh conversation and then i look at it today and i just I, i'm so grateful for you being out there when when you know when people weren't connecting the dots about the the, the president's impeachment uh, over the communications with um, with folks in this region, now people to, it's hard for people to put all this stuff together. And you were way out there. You saw this uh, thanks to all your experience. Talk to me about talk to me about that that campaign you were a part of and and and, and its relevance today. Well, I, I appreciate that. So, I mean, it was obvious to anybody who has worked in European security and foreign relations um, that NATO is an incredibly important institution for our security, for European security, for stability in the world, for peace and prosperity. And Donald Trump, among his many mistakes, uh, he managed to shake people's confidence that NATO would do its job. He, you know, obviously... Uh, irritated uh, European leaders, European publics. He was very unpopular in Europe for that reason. Um, and that the, the flip side of that is it sent a message to Putin that maybe NATO wouldn't stay together, wouldn't act if it needed to. And so there was a group of us, um, former military leaders, former ambassadors, leaders in ethnic communities, Polish, Lithuanian, Croatian, et cetera, who got together and said, uh, we need to communicate that message to, to voters, particularly in the Midwest swing states, uh, where there are a lot of Central and Eastern European Americans. You know, the statistic that's always quoted is there are more polls in Chicago than there are in Warsaw. And so we wanted to, to make very clear to voters who cared about this that reelecting Trump 
would be very dangerous for the values they care about and the homelands they came from and the relatives they still have there. And we got General Wesley Clark helped us. Actually, Mark Brzezinski, who uh, President Biden has made ambassador to Poland, is now there on the ground dealing with these issues. He was part of the group. And uh, it, was a, it was a campaign to communicate with voters, and we hope it had, hope it had some impact. And, and, and for anybody that's uh, watching this today, I can't imagine them not you know, if, if they received your communications or heard you all talking or watched you on the news, you know, I can't imagine them not hearkening back to this and it helping them, you know, connecting all of the, the dots. Staying here on, on sort of these world affairs, since we have, uh, we have a resource that's so unique to us here and the, the Senate family, the Senate of Maryland, um, you know, you are uh, you are your bride is a, uh, you know, a, a journalist of international renown. She's been a voice of uh, NPR and and uh, just a critical voice in this Washington region. H- how do you all uh, address the day every morning together when when this sort of seismic news is going on in a place that, you know, you know so much about it and have shared so much of, of your lives about it. I'd love to we understand talk, we, how that works. Well, we talked about it more at night and on the weekend because I'm in Annapolis most of the week. And, and she's broadcasting her uh, WIPR show from one of our upstairs bedrooms. Uh, <laughs> she wants you out of the house for that period well, of time. I guess. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally I'm staying overnight in Annapolis quite a bit this session. Good, and, good. And so, but, but at night and over the weekend, we talked about it. We talked about it, you know, at, at lunch today. Um, I mean, it's like everybody else, just trying to figure out what's really going on, what's likely to happen. Um, I mean, one of the things she's been impressed with, I've been impressed with, and obviously everyone has been impressed with, is uh, President Zelensky is the great communicator. I mean, President Zelensky of Ukraine has just done an unbelievable job. I'm world class. I've never seen anything like it. Maybe what do you think Churchill. his, what, what virtues is he bringing in the game? What tools is he bringing to the game as a professional observer? You know, what, 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 what's he doing right? What he's doing right is he is very visible. He is very informal. He is very direct. I mean, he's on, he's on our television all the time, let alone their television all the time. Um, and he talks like an ordinary person and he talks in clear sentences. Um, and so, I mean, he, he, he's a professional um, broadcaster. <laughs> I mean, I mean right, right. he really, he, he really is, you know, like people said about Ronald Reagan, he was good at communicating because that's what he did for a living. Well, that's what Zelensky did for a living before he was president. He was, he was a professional TV guy. And so he understands the media. He understands communication. And it's just a blessing that Ukraine has a president with those skills during this, this time. So he's doing a great job. But I would also say President Biden has done a great job in communications. Obviously, you know, he's criticized for this and that and people have disagreements. But the big decision that he made, and this was obvious about three or four months ago, when U.S. and NATO intelligence saw what Putin was doing when he was massing these troops, when he was planning this. Instead of holding that intelligence close to the vest and planning, they were planning, obviously. They were providing more um, armaments to Ukraine and so forth. He went public with it. And that was an incredibly important step because it meant what Putin, I believe, thought was that he was going to be able to create this false narrative that somehow Russia was in danger, Ukraine was going to do something to them, and there he had to defend himself. And he put that information out. He's still making those arguments. 
But Biden, because he put so much out of the public domain so early and so repetitively, got across, I think, I'm sure, to the American people, but also to the European uh, the European constituents, I mean, you know, the voters, not just the leaders, what Putin was up to. So that when Putin finally sent troops in and then started bombing, basically everybody understood what was going on. And that was tremendously helpful, including in Ukraine. I mean, remember at one point about six weeks ago when Biden was saying, Putin is going to invade, Putin is going to invade. And Zelensky was saying, oh, you know, don't be so wrought up about it. Maybe he won't invade. And I think he was doing that because he wanted to keep people calm. He didn't want panic, which made sense. But Biden had a very clear strategy, which was we got to warn people because when it happens, they need to understand what's going on. And I think that also helped uh, embolden the Ukrainians to fight back. It certainly helped Biden get the leaders, not just of the NATO members, but the support of Sweden, which is not a NATO member, uh, Finland, which is not a NATO member, Switzerland, which has been neutral, neutral in World War II, for God's sakes. Right. Uh, so Biden has been really, really smart about this and really good at communicating. And I think that's been a big part of why we've been as successful as we have been in helping Ukraine stalemate the Russians to the extent that they have. Uh, President Biden has the this huge international network that he's nurtured and cultivated for you know a generation. Yep. He's putting that to work. But we got to figure that uh, our cyber community is like the workhorse of this our American approach to this uh, global crisis. Like we seem to be leading with intelligence instead of being at war with our intelligence chiefs. We seem to be leveraging, you know, not only Biden's personal network, but the intelligence in the way that you just laid out. You know, talk to me about, uh, you know, some of those swing states go the wrong way. You know, Pennsylvania goes the wrong way. I mean, if if President Trump was in charge, if he was in the White House today, you know, what would be going on? I mean, can you can you is it unfair to ask you to to, to think no, about that? No, but I, I think about it periodically and then it just scares me to death. So I think about something else. <laughs> positive thoughts, positive thoughts, positive, positive thoughts. thoughts. Yeah, positive <laughs> thoughts. Well, really, because I think it's pretty clear that a big reason why Putin took this risk, and it was a big risk, and he knew it was a risk. He just didn't understand how big a risk because he had been lulled to sleep to some extent about American policy and American culture by Trump. Not that Trump was whispering in his ear and he believed what Trump said, but he saw that Trump was alienating European leaders. He saw that Trump was polarizing the American people. And so I think it gave him the impression that we were weak. And I think Putin was startled, and that may understate it, when he saw how quickly Biden was able to bring together the the leaders in Europe. These these sanctions, the economic sanctions on Russia are are much more profound, I think, in reality than they seem to be when you just read about them in the newspaper. And I don't think he conceptualized that. And I also think he thought, given the political division in the United States, that there would be pushback from the left or the right around this thing. Well, the end of last week, we just unanimously passed in the Senate um, the uh, Russian uh, sanctions, a divestiture from our pension fund of any Russian-related direct investments. Uh, I think we passed on second reading. We're going to pass on third reading this week unanimously. Um, 
a resolution of solidarity with, with the Ukrainian people. So it's brought together people in Maryland, it's brought, brought together people in the United States, and brought together people around the world. That's a big problem for Putin. Or hate him. One thing I always thought that Putin did successfully was, you know, he drove a, a wedge through the American dialogue with all this misinformation and the troll farms. Like we're all angry at our neighbors, and he sort of, you know, he brought us together. It sort of, yeah, he brought us together. I mean, it's just, it's it's amazing that he went that far because it, you know, it's it's it's. Other than the Olympics or something, it's tough to find something to agree with your neighbor no, on the other side no, of the fence about this one. You can agree, you know. Well, no, that's what's so amazing about it. And, and so so stupid. I mean, stupid is the right word. So does that mean it's so does that mean that things are so the edifice of um, sustainability of of Russia or is this thing just a, a much bigger mess internally than we could ever imagine that are. That's that, that's sort of driving this potentially as a distraction to to his constituency in Russian oh, Russia or is this this is just a, a just a massive global sort of uh, greedy misstep. I you know I, I wonder I sometimes. No, I understand the question. I, I think it's both. I, I think it's a situation in which he really believes in what he's doing. He really believes in expanding Russian political power. Uh, he really believes that Ukraine ought to be part of Russia. He really believes that he should dominate Eastern Europe. I, th- I think I think he's sincerely wrong about that, but I think I think he's sincere. He, he's sincere in the way Hitler was sincere. Hitler really thought all of Europe ought to be under German control. <laughs> he believed that. He wrote a book about it. I mean, wow, right. it's not like it's not like he was doing it that he was cynical about. It. He was straightforward about it. And just like Hitler, frankly, Putin gives speeches where he lays this out. So it's not like he's hiding it. But I also think that he believes that it helps him internally, politically in the short run. He's up for re-election in 2024. And for most Russians, the economy is not in great shape. Uh, the healthcare is not in great shape. Um, Russia is not a very successful country. And so I think his megalomania to expand their borders and dominate other people meshes with what he considers his short-term political interest. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I'm, I haven't been in Russia since 2008, I'm going to say. Uh, so I'm not really up on it on the ground. But my impression is that um, as in most even even uh, dictatorships, leaders popularity goes up and down based on reality. And so it's conceivable. I'm not sure it's more likely than not, but it's conceivable that if this drags on a long time, and if a lot more Russian soldiers are killed and come home to their families, and if the economic crunch of the sanctions hurt ordinary people, that you could have him removed from office by election, by coup d'etat, by a bullet, you know, all those things have happened. That's, in not, history. Just, uh, hopeful, happen. that's not hopeful global thinking. That's real. That's the way it's done there, right? Well, it's, it's, you know, human, as, as Mike Miller, bringing back to Maryland, would say, <laughs> times change, but people don't. Fair, fair, fair. Uh, talk, well, you're going to bring it home to Maryland. Uh, I'll take that uh, cue. 
We're in an election here, uh, here, Democratic primary. Is there anything that you, uh, you're, you're in uh, the, one of these wonderful positions where everybody's coming at you for support. And uh, so I wonder what you, uh, you feel comfortable talking about in the political space statewide, anything catching, catching your fancy in the governor's race or the comptroller's race. Love to hear what it's like for the Senator from Prince George's County. That's the, I'll tell you the truth as I always do. Uh, I'm aggressively neutral in all those races um, because I think we got a lot of great candidates. Yeah. Uh, and so given that I don't even know what my district is going to be yet until the court of appeals decides uh, I'm going to keep watching and talking and listening to the candidates. I think we really have a lot of great candidates. And so I think we're going to do fine. Uh, regardless of who the nominee is. They got to run a good campaign because I think either uh, Dan Cox or Kelly Schultz will be, they'll be strong candidates. People write off Cox. I think Kelly in the primary. Uh, He obviously would be very divisive sort of in terms of politics in Maryland. You remember Donald Trump couldn't win. You remember that? Right. I remember that. So I'm not, I'm not making any predictions. Well, I've got it. I've got a. I've got a layup for you here. Uh, one of my heroes was was a dear friend of yours, and uh, talked about you all the time with with a lot of pride in his heart. That's Ted Venatoulis. Oh man, you've seen him. Uh, his name again, uh, even after he's gone, has come up in such prominence with the Venatoulis Institute and the, the starting of the Baltimore Banner. I just love to hear uh, whatever you could tell me about you and Ted. Oh no, he was terrific. I knew, knew him for a long time, and you know, like every you didn't run anybody who didn't know Ted Ventoulas. I mean, he was a happy warrior. I mean, that's the main thing about him uh, is he was a warrior, but he was a happy warrior. Every conversation I ever had with Ted Ventoulas, I came away with a smile on my face, and I think that's true of everybody who dealt with him. But it wasn't because he wasn't doing anything; it was because he was doing so much, <laughs> and he was engaged with so many people in so many different ways. Um, and, uh, his, his loss is a real loss to Maryland. I always, I always would tease and say that, you know, Baltimore is a very tribal town. And Ted, one of the few times he got really stern with me, uh, he was like, no, it's not Damien. It's, it's a, it's a very unified culture and town. And I was like, you know, I'm just not working as hard as Ted Venetolis when talking to everybody and activating every conceivable network in this city. Because if I were Ted Venetolis, I would definitely think it is one city with one heart. So, I think uh, that's right. I think it's a very good insight. It's pretty good insight. <laughs> Senator Rosepeth, thank you so much for, for spending some Sunday with us. We are so grateful here at Center Maryland, and uh, we'd love to love to give you the last word to uh, leave with your colleagues or constituents uh, uh, in the state of Maryland in a great uh, oh, No, I appreciate being with you. I appreciate what you guys do and uh, look forward to coming back sometime. Thank you so much, Senator. Give uh, Sheila Cast our best and uh, all our love to your family. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Peace. Bye-bye.